The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's reading is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. Um, it is on page 1014 on the Bibles under your seats. Or you can follow along on the screen behind me. He was, for, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Well, good morning. It's, uh, I feel like I have been on a whirlwind roll the last couple days, and it's, it's really cool to, um, to kind of be here. Because, I, you know, I see as... Um, when I'm teaching, how God has just given me stuff as I'm moving to bring and, and to give to others. So um, you're going to see that, you're going to hear that this morning, and um, so we'll, we'll let it run from there. I've captioned this morning, uh, the teaching this morning is a joyful sacrifice. Um, that's uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. Um, three sections, and it's really, when you're teaching four verses, it's Hard to break down, like, I'm going to teach these couple sections for these themes. But I do have three themes. And so the themes are where we're going to go this morning. Very simple. The first is Christian living. Um, What does our behavior look like if if we're actually living this thing out? Um, The second is Christian giving, which is part of living. But it's the essence of giving is the essence of living for Christ. And so I'll break that down as well. And then the last section is Christian perceiving. So living, giving, and perceiving. It's the Christian thing. Um, And the perceiving is this, is that it's really difficult, if you're honest with yourself, about living out what we're called to live if we don't see things of biblical truth with clarity. Because the, the problem is, is the default setting for everything we see and know and hear and absorb is the world. And the world says, exalt yourself and more, bigger, and better, and let's do it in high def, let's do it in color, let's do it, you know, let's blow it out, and and you're going to be center stage for this. That's the default setting if I don't have a biblical view. It's to exalt myself. It's the problem that started in the garden, is that I don't want to listen to God. I don't want to do it his way. I want to do it my way. And so, obviously, if we don't have an eye to see the things of significance, whether it's the past, present, or future, Um, It's going to be hard to live out what we profess as Christians. So with that, I want to ask you a couple questions. Um, One of the hardest questions in living a Christian life is this. And this is me. I don't know about any of you guys, but I think you, hopefully you'll identify. As a Christian, if we must suffer in living out our faith and be required to make sacrifices, and sometimes really big sacrifices in life, whether it's in 
how we get educated and how we honor God in our career and how we, how we um, work to make a marriage work, how we use our wealth, how we're a parent. If we're to make tremendous sacrifices in those areas, here's the big question. I think some of us can gut it out, all right? That's not has nothing to do with Christianity. How do we do it joyfully? How do you do it where the world goes, I don't get this guy, I don't get this gal. How, how did they keep a smile on their face? How did they endure that? How did they honor God in that way where the rest of us are really struggling and don't want to do it even if we have to do it? So I, I know people, and, and I think some of us will know, who I'm talking about here. I'm, jo I'm joking a little bit here. The Christianity isn't much more than chewing on lemons for 12 hours a day. You know, they're like, oh, I did it for the Lord, but boy, I'm working for the Lord. And it's, it's this toil. It's, I think it's work listening to those people, actually. So I don't, I don't know with you guys. Or on the other hand, we just have drill sergeants. Well, I'm going to man up and I'm going to do this. And they're cracking the whip. But there's no joy. See, the world can gut it out. The world can say, well, I did it because it was the right thing to do. No, no, no. I, I don't do Christianity because it's the right thing to do. I do Christianity because a holy God sent his son and tortured him for the punishment that I should have received. I should have received this torturous condemnation for my sin. And God says, no. That, that, that through this redemption that, that took place in my son, I've redeemed you and called you a son. And then embraced me as a broken, fallen man. And not only redeemed me and embraced me, but loved me and restored me. And placed me in sonship before a holy God. And if we get that, that should leave my mouth on the floor with this big gaping expression like, why me? How, how could you do that? And it's the essence of God. It's the, it's the core of who God is. God is what? If you can say one thing, quick, what is God? Love. Quick. The easiest was Christian. They, they, they confronted Christ at one point. Matthew, I think it's chapter 11 or 12. They said, can you give me the cliff note version? He said, yeah, yeah. Love the Lord with all your might, heart, soul. Love your man as yourself. Puts a period on it, walks away. That's the essence of where we are. And so how, how do we do that with joy? You know, it, it's not about gritting it's not about gritting it out. So, so if we're going to do this thing called Christianity, how do we do it with, a, with joy, with real joy? You see, the other problem with joy is you can't fabricate it. I, we were getting lots of pictures this week, and people say, smile. And I hate my picture taken for this reason. Like, if I'm happy, like, catch me there, all right? Don't say paste a fake grin so you can be in this photo to capture the moment. Well, hey, no moment here. I don't want to have to paste some fake smile on my face so I can fabricate your happiness in the future. Or at least say, at least he looked happy back then. I, I, it's like it's false to me. Um, now, I get there's other reasons to smile in photos. If there's the time and the moment, absolutely smile. But I, I have a problem with that. I, I don't like trying to bluff reality. And so the question becomes this this morning in opening. How do we do it with joy? What's a joyful sacrifice look like? So let me give you a quick recap on where we are to catch up with 1 Peter. Really interesting at this point with 1 Peter, with three things are up until this moment, we've got three things going on, and it's the past, the present, and the future. And the past is this. Peter has been explaining to his people that you've been redeemed. You have been redeemed. This precious 
grace has been extended to you through the favor of a holy God who, who chose you before the, the foundations of the world. And if we get that, you know, that's an amazing thing to be the recipient of that kind of grace. The second thing is this. They were, they were in a lot of uh, difficulty and turmoil at the time they were receiving this letter. So he acknowledges and says, yeah, I, I get it that there's trials and tribulations. But that's part of the package. But if you get the price paid for your redemption, that may mitigate some of the trials and tribulations. And lastly, that there's a hope in the future. So if I've placed you here with a purpose, that there's the sovereignty of God and that, that this trial, this tribulation isn't an accident, but that there's a holy God utilizing these trials and tribulations to refine you the way we refine gold. And not only is this a good thing happening based upon what you've received, but it's a great thing for the future because there's a return on it, that, that, that the glory and the honor of the Father is at stake here. So that's kind of where we are. And, and so if you know these things, the question's like, so what? All right, truthfully, well, this is great about the past. This is good where I am, but not really good where I am, but it'll be good in the future. So what? And so we pick up in verse 13, and I'm going to put this just in context for us because the difficulty, again, is I don't want to take out of context where we wind up this morning. And, and it opens up with this. Uh, let me do something. How many? Uh, I've been talking for how long? Maybe five minutes? Five minutes? You give me five minutes? I got didn't start my clock. So verse 13, we start off, therefore. There's your so what. Or since, as a result of this past, this present affliction, and this future that's coming. Therefore, here's the conclusion. And the question is, how do, how do we live now? Because Peter was, Peter, this book of 1 Peter isn't a, intentionally a theological treatise. And when Christ showed up at, uh, to see Peter after the crucifixion, he restored him. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter's hurt and offended. <laughs> yeah. And what does he say? Peter, do you love me? He goes, yeah. And then Christ responds. He doesn't say, thanks. I feel the warm fuzzy. He says, feed my sheep. He, he gives them work. And it's specifically to shepherd a particular group of people. And so with that, what he's doing in 1 Peter is really a book of Christian living, of saying, how do you live this stuff out? Now, it's going to touch upon deep theological doctrine, but it's not the point. It's how do we live this out, which is directly relevant to us. So it says, therefore, how do we live this out? Preparing our minds for action. See, you, all, thought, all action born in thought. So the first thing he says is get your mind right. I love the, the translation here, gird your mind. And, and Hebrews, uh, in, in Jesus' day, we kind of miss this. If you gird your, gird your mind. Is, is back in Jesus' day, what did all men wear? Bathrobe. Not a it's a bathrobe, right? No, it's a tunic. But if they were going to do some work, they would gird up the tunic. They would pull it up because it went down to your ankles. It wasn't good to show your legs. So if you're going to do some work, you're going to pull up your robe so you can start running or doing whatever you're doing. And what's happening here is he's saying, gird up your mind. Get it ready for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you with the revelation of Christ. So he says, fix your mind and look for the, for, look for the goal. This, this hope, I love this, it says, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. That hope is not the way we use the word. When you hear something like this, I hope I have a good lunch today. I hope I don't get a speeding ticket going home. I, I hope that, um, you know, I make some money this week. Well, when I say use the word hope, there's always an element in there of the unknown. 
Right? I'm not certain. I'm wishing these things would happen. The hope here that he's using is this kind of hope. I hope Clemson has a good season this coming year. All right? Now, Randy will appreciate that. He's not here, but he hears the podcast. He's like, oh, yeah, I get that. But that's not hope. That's reality based upon their history. That's not speculative. And he says, set your hope on the grace that we brought to you for the redemption of Christ, which means this is inevitable. And so with that, he says, as obedient children, and there's our standing, obedient children, meaning we've got some work to do in compliance with what God directs. Do not be conformed to the passions of your formal ignorance. So he's saying you can't live the way you used to. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he's saying this stuff's got to be cleaned up. And you are cleaned up, but there's a sanct- you're cleaned up through the cleansing blood of Christ, but there's a sanctification process going on here. Two aspects of holiness, what he has done and what we have to do to manifest that sanctification process. But as he who called you is holy, okay, we got that. And if you will call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing, and here's the big deal, he, he brings this back to saying, this is why we act this way, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the lamb without blemish or spot. And so why do we do all of this? And here's, here's, where, here's the big why. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So you see somebody, imagine this, if I worked my entire life, parents do this all the time. They'll kill themselves to give their kid an education because they want them to have a better life. And literally what we have is Christ killing himself. Not that we have a better life, but that we have a holy life, that we manifest who he is to this broken, fallen world. And he says, I did this for you. You know, imagine if I, I was thinking about this. Imagine if you had an illness, you need a blood transfusion, and I brought my kid took him up, bled him out to the death so you could have his blood. How would you treat me? How would you treat me with reverence? I mean, that's incomprehensible to me. Now, I trust God and I know God is good and holy and sovereign, but that sounds like a parent who's a monster. Set that aside. How would you feel watching the blood flow into your transfusion, knowing your life is being given at the expense of another? He says, this is why we conform our conduct to give due deference or acknowledgement to the holiness of this God who, who for the sake of you, who through him his son are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And here we pick up now. So we pick up this morning there just to put that kind of in context. Verse 22 says this, having purified your souls, it continues this thought of this redemption, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So so what is this? This is simply the receipt of salvation, that I am obedient to the fact that I have received Christ, that he is the truth, he is the way, he is the light. So I'm simply in obedience to this truth of who he is. And by that obedience to this truth, I am redeemed. It's interesting when you see the word, your obedience to the truth. Um, if we were doing a literal version, the T would be a capital. We know John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so the question becomes this, if we're obedient, if we're obedient to this truth, what does obedience mean? John 14, 21 tells this, whoever has my commands and keeps them is one who loves me. 
And this sounds like works-based theology, but it's not, because we don't do anything to receive the gift of salvation. Our behavior is in response to the receipt, not to warrant the receipt. So it's basically saying that, that, that this obedience to this truth plays with this brotherly love, because if there is an obedience to this truth, there's no, there is no brotherly love. So that's really, the, the Christian living is about obedience to the truth. And that's, that's it. It's obedience to, to yielding my life, yielding my existence to who this God is. That's obedience to the truth. And then it tells us this, this is a huge statement. Love one another earnestly or fervently from a pure heart. Now there's the big problem. I can love you and make it look good, but does it come from a pure heart? It's no different than saying, I can serve you and love you, or I can serve you and love you joyfully. See, this from a pure heart, there's joy. This is, it's the return. It's the return of the presence and honoring a holy God. 1 John 4.10 tells us this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So again, if you're trying to do this without the love of God, skip it. Stay home. You'll get hurt. 1 John, 1 John 3.16 tells us this. this. This is how we know what love is that Jesus laid his life down for us. So the template is sacrifice. Can't get around that. If, if you boil it down, it's sac- the essence of love is sacrifice. And so if we love, what does it mean? And, and Jesus tells us this, a new, new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, by this, this loving Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And what grieves me is that if we look around the landscape of the collective church, not a particular denomination, not a little house, but the collective church, is there one hallmark that screams to the world who we are? Is there one hallmark that screams to the world that who we are? And, and when I look around, um, I don't see it. I don't see it. And that's an indictment on me because I'm a part of the body. It's an indictment on us. That, that is this a body that's known for his love for one another, is these people, that what they have, because this isn't in the world. There's none of this type of love in the world. The world is void of this because God's not of those people in the world. See, this love is the essence of who he is, and it should be manifest in our presence where the world looks over the fence and says, that looks like real love. Kind of crazy love, doesn't look like worldly love, but that looks like love. That's the message they should be receiving. And it's interesting now because you say, Jonathan, you're blowing this over. This is out of proportion. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. First Peter 4 eight tells us this. Peter says, above all, above all, every, you can be a sloppy sinner, but at least love somebody right. And I'm not mitigating living with sin. I'm, I, I'm not saying overlook it. But I'm saying if you've got a choice in being sloppy in every aspect of your life but loving somebody or getting it all together and not loving somebody, skip it. Love them. Skip it. First Peter 4 eight tells us this later on. We'll cover this. Above all, love each other deeply. So I've captioned this Christian living because this is the essence and so here's a question. If we love, what does that really mean? What does love really look like? And I, I'm going to say it very simply. It's to give. 
For God so loved the world that what? He gave. Yeah, that's where it starts. I know when you, you know, you can tell what is important to a man. Look at his wallet and his watch. And how he spends or gives. See, we all get 24 hours. You say, well, I don't have a lot of money. No, 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 no. It don't matter about money. Our time is much more valuable than our money in the grand scheme of things, by the way. But our money is the biggest canary in the coal mine. So when you see how the wallet is, is what's in the wallet and where it goes, that really tells the truth about what we value versus what comes out of our mouth. So God starts by giving. So what does that look like? I was at a wedding in New Orleans. Now, part of this illustration is really bad because I want to tell you it was a sacrifice to go to New Orleans, but the food is really pretty good. I mean, it seems like if I could tell you anything about New Orleans, the depravity is probably much greater than the last time. I was, I was there one year ago, the Wednesday after Fat Tuesday, and here I am this year again, the Wednesday after Fat Tuesday in New Orleans. Have sympathy on me. Do I hear it? Come on. So, oh, so sorry you had to be there, Jonathan. Yeah, food was good. It, it's gluttonous good. It was like shrimp and eggs. I don't know how you do that, but they make it work. It's like it works. So I'm at this wedding in New Orleans this past Friday to celebrate. Um, a, Rick Hudson got married, one of, our, one of our prior members, dearly, dearly loved member of Doxa who moved, who God called him to a different season outside of this body. And as I was there, I started talking to lots of people. And um, what was really interesting here, there were people from California, New Mexico, Arizona, Alaska, South Carolina, Virginia, all over the place. And it was a Friday wedding, which is kind of interesting. I was trying to think through why they did Friday, but I'm sure they had good reasons for that. But here's what happened. Everybody I talked to, I know they did a lot of work to get there. I mean, between airfare, you know, driving, hotel. I mean, we all stayed at a nice, it was a nice hotel where we stayed. And I said, well, if you want to do it here, you could stay at Econo Lodge, you know, in the bombed out section of New Orleans, the Ninth Ward probably. Uh, you don't want to go there, really. I don't mean that in such a derogatory manner. It's just, I'm presuming it's not as nice as where we stayed. But everybody just showed up, looked good. They, they spent money on airfare. They spent money on hotel uh, and all the incidental travels. I'm sure everybody bought them a gift. And the whole time I was there, I had nobody say, that was a real hassle getting here, well, a lot of work. I mean, this cost me a, an arm and a leg. Nobody, 150 people, not an inkling of a complaint. As a matter of fact, everybody there, big grins. Brother, it's great to have you. Where are you from? Just lots of grins and rejoicing in light of a ton of sacrifice. How is that? How is that? You have tremendous sacrifice with lots of smiles and nobody's faking it, except when you ask me to take a picture. All right? Everybody else smiling like they're happy and want to be there. With joy. And here, here's how we know. Because the bride and groom were deeply loved. People drop. When somebody's, you see, the love is the, the, the linchpin for the joy. See, if I didn't love these people, I'd have been gritting my teeth. I mean, other than when I'm eating food. I mean, let's be real again now. But I'd be like, I didn't have time for this. You know, lots of people brought their families and their kids and all kinds of stuff. There were a lot of people that dropped what was going on. And truthfully, it would have been shockingly poor etiquette to have talked of a sacrifice to get there. It's like this unspoken rule that you wouldn't talk about sacrifice. They'd drag you out in the parking lot and stone you for that. That would be poor. It's just a, a display of poor behavior. 
And there wasn't, here's the truth, there wasn't even a need. Nobody felt that need because it was dwarfed by the love for the bride and the groom. And that's what giving looks like within the body of Christ. That you'll set your priorities aside, you'll make sacrifices in work, sacrifices with money, sacrifices with your time. And when you show up, you got a great grin because you get to, you don't have to. See, I got to go. I didn't have to. And the return there, and here's the big deal, and I think this is where we miss it. Without the joy, that without understanding that the love motivates everything, there would have been no joy. I mean, to remove the love from that festivity would have been to gut the event. There would have been nothing left there. There would be two people signing a legal contract and having a meal. The essence, the everything from stem to stern was about love at this particular event. So let me ask you, how do we get that? How do we get it? And again, it, it's an inside job. And so if you're here this morning and you're saying, well, I ain't got the inside job going on here. Let me ask some questions. Because ultimately, I know some people probably struggled to get to that wedding. They're probably fighting in the car or on the plane or got their luggage lost. They didn't even hear about lost luggage, but it might have been lost. I know there were complications, at least with 150 people to get there. But by, by the time they showed up at the festivities, they had washed aside any of the difficulty. See, it is going to be a sacrifice living this thing out if we really profess Christ. Let me ask you this. A lot of times, if you do something for the wrong motivation, we can kind of start there to see if the love is present. And here's just a couple. Is the love present? Are you feeling the love yet? Is our love present? Here's some questions. Is our giving conditional? When we give, because if you don't own where we are, we, until I realize I'm at the end of my rope, I don't need God. Let me say that again. Until I'm at the end of my rope, I don't need God. Because if I have a cushy, comfortable lifestyle, I'm doing okay. Now, it's a lie to myself, and I'm delusional, because without him, I'm not okay. But how do, how do we get to the place where we understand where we are on the rope? So let me ask these questions. Is our giving conditional? It's one of those, um, I'll only give if you give first. Is our giving limited to a particular class of people, economically or socially? Um, do, do we curtail those whom we give to? Is our giving, if you get hit, by the way, with the Holy Spirit stick, the conviction stick, don't, don't get upset with me. I mean, I don't know what's going on in your life or the week you've had. You only know about mine at this point. So if you get whacked in the back of the head with the Holy Spirit conviction stick, don't blame me, all right? Is our giving only in response to a feeling that we have to give? You see, if I feel like giving, I'm not going to give. Do I have to have, oh, I feel like giving that? No, you'll never give. Don't worry about that. Is giving reciprocal? And there's a lot of other things. It's not always are you going to give me back a gift? It's are, are you going to acknowledge me? Are you going to like me? Are you going to value me? Are you going to, at some point in my need in the future, come to my aid if I give to you? You see, there are a lot of strings attached to giving, unless it's biblical. That's an easy way. Do you give with strings? Is our giving a show for others to see how to commend us in our generosity? I mean, I like feeling when I give somebody something nice, they go, thanks, I feel good. Now that's temporary and fleeting. There ain't no reward there either. Is our giving simply with what we can afford in terms of our time and money? Do we, do we have to have act excess in order to give with our time and money? And that's a hard, because you know what? You'll never give if we're waiting for a little excess of time or money. 
that's not going to come. Because the world sucks every moment and everything it can out of you. Is our giving calculated and planned? Well, I can afford this, and if I do it that way, is, is there that type of giving? Are we giving at all? Some of us are sitting here just like leeches, attached to the church, sucking for what we can get out of it. Do we plan to give but have difficulty getting around to it? That's a, I'd love to, I've heard this. There's a need going on, somebody, I'd love to give. Oh, no, no, you can plan to get ready to give in the future. Because those needs are going to be there in the future, trust me. You have set aside a little giving fund, a blessing fund to say, God, I'm going to acknowledge that in the future our need's going to arise, and I'm now making a sacrifice to honor you when the need arises. And you say, well, well, Jonathan, I have a good job. I'm in college. No, 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 that's lunacy. Because there's four things. We always give a time, talent, treasure, and truth. Money's just a little part. And go back to the widow who put the little coin in the basket. See, it's not what we give. It's the sacrifice underneath the gift. That he sees that heart. Or how about this? If, if maybe you're getting it right today, where we give unconditionally, maybe we give lavishly. You know, that's what, if a kid gives you a gift, let me say this, receive it gratefully. I don't care if he's giving you a wrapper. Now, one of the things you're like, oh, I don't need this. No, 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 little Johnny, you keep. No, no, no. Condition them. Condition them. Condition the generosity. Receive a gift from a child always, always. Is our giving no respecter of persons? Here's a hard one in giving. Is our giving anonymous? Because, because all this giving is about love. Is our giving anonymous? Is our giving simply in obedience to a call to give sometimes? You know, Christ was called to sacrifice his life. It was a call to give. And God, there are times that God will call us to give those types, not a life sacrifice for most of us, but a, a sacrifice in something we feel we don't have. Is our giving associated with joyful sacrifice? Is, is there a satisfaction? Is there a joy there? Uh, God loves what? A spiteful giver? Oh, come on, a cheerful giver. I mean, it's, I know this is, day, this is a bad morning. Anyone who gets daylight savings time Sunday is, is being tortured. I'm sorry about that. I'm stuck. So just live, live, live with this. So let me ask you this right now. Hopefully you felt a little tap on the back of the head with the Holy Spirit conviction stick this morning. Because if you don't get that tap, I might be smug and where I am, I'm doing good, Jesus. Uh, never doing good when I'm thinking that. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's, an, that's the door of complacency. The entrance to complacency is with me patting myself on the back. So who is God calling us to love on? And that's really what this is about again. Who is he calling us to love on? You know what's really amazing to me? I'm going to read this. Uh, we've already touched on it. First Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply. Now here's the unbelievable passage. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Think about that. So if I love you, is it saying my love is covering sins? Whether they're your sins, my sins, or somebody else's sins? Or just lots of sins? That's what it's saying here. My love for you covers a multitude of sins. And you say, that sounds crazy. No, no, no. That's the core of Christianity. Is that the love of Christ on a cross covered, guess what? A multitude of sins. And we simply manifest the example set before us in Christ. And he says, just like with his son, it's with you. That our love, I see, I could be doing something poorly and still eke out a little bit of love. And what I'm hearing here is that, that the offenses against God get overlooked 
when he sees the manifestation of love in my presence. That's unbelievable, by the way, if you really think that through, that the manifestation or the presence of love overcomes the sin. Christian perceiving. Now, so we get this passage in here, and let me read this. Love one another uh, earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, that's why we love, because we have received this. And uh, this born again thing, here's the origin of it. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, meaning this is going to last indefinitely. Through the living and abiding word of God. So let me talk just a moment about the word of God. For the word of God is living and active. That's Hebrews 4.12. The word of God tells us this, Psalm 33.6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hopes. Psalm 119.89. You want to ever spend a lot of time in a particular passage and just get fed? Go read Psalm 119. Just soak in it. Just read it, read it, read it. Psalm 119.89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The sum of your word is truth. You see that again? And every one of your righteous rules endures how long? And it's forever. So this is the word that, that, that redeems us. And then it gives us this passage. This is really interesting. Um, I started doing a word search. I'm like, all the flesh is like grass and its glory, uh, like the, excuse me, let me read this. All the flesh is like grass and all its glory like flowers of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so it's really interesting. You go, well, the word of the Lord remains forever. Why are they telling about this grass and the flower why, why are they telling us that these things fade, but this thing of God remains indefinitely? The grass withers, flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on us. This is, this is Isaiah 48, 40, verses 6 through 8. All the flesh is like grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers, flower fades word of the Lord endures forever. Surely, who's like the grass? And this is a perception check for us to say your life is but a flicker. And yes, there's an eternal element that comes into the future, but that he gives us this, why is he telling us this now? And it's to say, boy, this is not a dress rehearsal. And it's a short show in the grand scheme of things, how fast, how fast life goes. And here, here's, I think, why they're saying it. A priority is when I push everything to the side to push what's most important forward. Let me say it again. A priority is when I push everything aside to put that which is most important front and center. See, I went to this wedding. Why? My work sat there. My, my dogs got somebody to fix them or take care of them. All of this, all these sacrifices that were made to the wedding get pushed aside because the priority is the joy and the celebration, and the loving relationship. And only that allows me to have a perspective when I know I won't. There's not going to be another wedding for Rick Hudson in New Orleans. I'm not going to miss it. And what they're saying is you're going to miss it if you don't get how quick and how short this, this gift of life really is. And I say this for this reason. A lot of us, you know, up until about 10 years ago, I felt like I lived a life that was, yeah, you had some health issues, banging, you know, I had some scares, some things happened. But in the last 10 years of my life, I've had the, the, the privilege of being able to clean up the mess when somebody dies. And when you walk into a room where somebody has lived and they're gone, 
and you bag up the vast majority of your stuff and walk it to the curb or to associated charities, and then you look at the other handful of trinkets and you think, I don't even have room for this. I don't want it. And you take one or two things of value and you walk away and that room is empty. There's nothing left. Leaves a knot in your gut and you go, whoa. So you mean all the time I spent in building and more and bigger and better and glitzy and glamour and the sacrifice for money that I had to work to acquire all this that gets carted to the core or given to associated charities or sold for pennies on the dollar at a yard sale. That's it? That's the fruit of my existence? And i got to be honest with you, it's alarming. And until I walked it to the curb, I wasn't getting it. Yes, I was getting it in some respects, that God gives me an awareness of sometimes. But boy, that's what he's saying here. How much time do we spend in our daily lives working to earn money, to get, to get money, to buy things that at the end of our lives will prove absolutely meaningless? And you say, oh, no, 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 but I want to leave this for my kids. And the kid looks and says, I don't want that. Literally. Now, if you knew each time you made a purchase that, that 20 or 30 years from now, somebody would be walking it to the curb, you'd reconsider the purchase. That's what the quote from Isaiah is telling us. Because if I can't figure out what's important and what's not, I'll never love the way we're being called to love here. Because it's sacrificially. You have to push all the other stuff to the side to push this to the front. That's the alarm that goes off here in our heads. And if we miss that, there's no way I'll have the capacity or the foresight to push what's important to the front of the line. And that's the truth with me. I don't know about you. I think about the amount of time and energy I spend working to buy things I don't need, you don't want, and have no utility for the cause of Christ. And that's a sobering thought, but if it's not a sobering thought, I'm, I'm never, I'm never going to be able to see what's important. And so I leave that with you guys this morning. So I want to read you something. You know, well, let me read the caption because it really sums this up. I got, I got an article here, really interesting little story here. I want to read you the caption. How to enjoy being miserable. You like that caption? How do we, let's be real. Sacrifice is misery, right? How to enjoy being miserable. There's two kinds of misery, self-chosen, doing without candy. This is, this is written by a Jesuit priest from the 1940s and 50s, by the way. So you can kind of see this. This is when smoking was okay for everybody. Self-chosen, doing without candy or smoking, probably very unimportant compared to the second kind. So this sacrifice is when I say, okay, I'll do without. But the second kind is the big deal. The second kind of misery is God-chosen. That's where we are here. That's the topic of conversation of First Peter. If you're suffering, it's God-chosen. Now, if you made a stupid decision, clean it up, let's move forward. The trials and tribulations, I think, to really put in context, are things that came to them, not because of their stupid behavior, but because of their profession in Christ. That's a good definition. So this, we have self-chosen and God-chosen, or providential, Friday abstinence, headaches, sister-in-law's temper. I love it. I don't have a sister-in-law, by the way. A sister-in-law's temper. I used to have sisters-in-law. Um, weather and death. These can either be big, they're too rare and overwhelming to enjoy, until we gradually learn to practice on little sufferings on how to do it. Do you understand that? So they're saying the big sufferings, until we're really down the road of life, we can't even get through them well. But here's the big deal. The little sufferings, very important. 
Because petty inconveniences and annoyances are a thousand times more frequent than the big tragedies. Like the widow and her might, usually we have only the might suffering. Like the traffic delay or the telephone busy signal to offer, little sufferings are easier to practice in order to develop a habitual outlook and attitude toward inevitable misery. There are three attitudes we can have toward misery. We can be crushed by them, jump into the river and throw ourselves over our heads, and we can be profane, we can be resentful. So if you're going to have misery, oh, woe is me, put on the sackcloth. The second, we can accept them, and this is where we grit our teeth, accept them resignedly. If we ignore them stoically, we are wasting the most valuable experience. Think about that. And here's the third option. Be crushed by it, accept it, or enjoy them. To do this, you either have to be crazy or in love. See, I'd have walked to New Orleans this past week to be at the wedding of Rick Hudson. I'd have slept in the gutter the three days I spent there to walk up and put a blue suit on with Dale and I, put a blue suit on stand next to this man of God. To witness, to bear witness to what, this, to what this man did when he said, God, I'm done. I want to honor you. I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want to be the man you want me to be. And to have a conversation with a man like that in my living room five years earlier and then watch him stand in front of a huge crowd and see a beautiful woman approach him to be his bride. Now that's, that's it. Don't get better. That's why John the Baptist said, man. I just get to hang out with Jesus, this rocks. Just to ring the bell that he's here is good enough for me. Because we understand it's by God's grace that I can even stand next to this man and rejoice with him compared to the wretch I was before his grace intervened. And that's what we're doing in 1 Peter this morning. So do we get it? Do we get it that it's about love? It's because of love. And it's to love. So I'm done. I want to pray for us. I'm going to do a quick communion intro, but I, but I want to pray for us before I go any further here. Father, Father, we, um, there are some of us here that are loving well, and I just rejoice. I just, I say thank you that they, that they give and they're grinning, and it fuels my love for you when I see them giving. There are some of us that, that are here that don't even want to accept the misery that, that, that where we are. And Lord, I know that the only reality, the only reality for me is that, that without you, it's impossible. And I pray that we could love and encourage those people, that by our example, that through our love for them, they um, would learn to love because you love. Father, I pray for those that today are kind of accepting with resignation um, the, the difficulties that really are God-ordained, that we would see those God-ordained difficulties and that, that we could move from simply accepting them to receiving them. That we, that, we would, that we would be able to know that you are a holy, sovereign God and that the adversity in our life wouldn't be there if it wasn't being used for our good through you. So, Father, I pray for us as a church, this little church of Doxa, but as the church of Jesus Christ the world over, that again, slowly but surely, this world would take note that, that this is about love and about love for one another. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. 
At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.